Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Fund Finance Friday Industry Conversations. I'm Jeremy Cross, a partner in Cattlewater's Fund Finance Group in London. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Michael Sholem, who is special counsel in the Financial Services Group at Cadwallader, Asya Damianova, who is special counsel in the Capital Markets Group. What we're going to be talking about today is LIBOR transition, and specifically with reference mostly to the sterling LIBOR transition. It's a subject that I know people will have seen a lot about in the papers and in the industry press but we thought it would be helpful to talk through some of the issues in general, some of the timing issues, some of the issues that yet remain to be resolved. And uh, Michael and Asya have very kindly agreed to, to join me to, to talk about all of this. So, um, so maybe um, I will start by just setting scene a little bit and then I will hand over to, to Michael and or Asya. So the, Issues with LIBOR as a, uh, a rate-setting mechanism go back quite a long way. Um, there has been a level of dissatisfaction with the LIBOR rates for a long time in the market, and we have now got to a point at which the decision has been taken to get rid of LIBOR at some point relatively soon, and we'll speak more about that in a minute and discuss it and also to introduce some alternative rates to LIBOR, which it is hoped will more accurately reflect the market, will be less open to abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a very broad introduction. At this point, maybe I'll introduce Michael Sholem. And Michael, would you be able to give us a bit of regulatory background as to how this is all playing out? at the moment and how it's how it's going. Sure, thanks Jeremy. So the regulator of LIBOR itself is actually the UK Financial Conduct Authority. Um, it's the regulator of ICE benchmarks who administer the LIBOR rate. Um, the FCA has said that they've got a voluntary agreement from all the panel banks who currently contribute to the calculation of LIBOR rate to continue to submit to that process until the end of 2021. But the FCA have also said they don't intend to uh, insist that those banks carry on providing submissions to that process after that date. So LIBOR uh, is scheduled to end at the end of 2021. There are uh, clear regulatory expectations that have been set out over the last two years in relation to the process, what's called LIBOR transition, the transition away from LIBOR to alternative uh, reference rates for all kinds of financial contracts. Um, what are those regulatory expectations? Well, first of all, uh, the FCA and the PRA, the, the Prudential Regulator of Banks, have required firms to identify um, their use of LIBOR across their businesses. They have asked banks to quantify the level of their LIBOR exposures. They want banks to set up clear transition plans with senior managers in charge of the transition process and make sure that transition team is adequately resourced. Uh, they want to identify both prudential 
i.e. risks to the solvency of the firm, and conduct risks that are associated with the transition process. So conduct risks, you know, how that banks deal with customers um, when changing their reference rate from LIBOR to an alternative rate. Um, that banks should carry out scenario planning and think about uh, the different results that could occur, for example, where you have very different approaches being taken by US regulators, EU regulators, and UK regulators. Um, and finally, they should think about trying to make sure they transact using the new risk-free rates that have been established, uh, like Sonia, which we'll talk about in more detail, uh, and also building in fallbacks to their financial contracts where a transition to the new rate is not necessarily possible. Thanks, Michael. That's a very, very helpful introduction. So maybe I could turn to, to Asia. Um, Asia, we've heard Michael mention Sonia, and we've heard Michael refer to risk-free rates. Um, and this, these, these are what LIBOR is intended to transition to. W would you be able to give us a bit of background on Sonia and in particular risk-free rates and perhaps a brief background on the main differences between what will be risk-free rates and Sonia in the case of Sterling and what is currently LIBOR rates? Thank you, Jeremy. As Michael said, that there are a number of workflows across the industry. Um, at the Bank of England, there's a working group on sterling risk-free reference rates, and their preferred benchmark for the transition to sterling risk-free rates is the sterling overnight index average rate, which is SONIA. So what is the difference between such risk-free rates as SONIA and IBORS, which stands for interbank offered rate and LIBOR being one of them. Risk-free rates overnight rates, while eyeballs are available in multiple tenors, for example, one, three months, six months, eyeballs incorporate a bank credit credit premium or liquidity risk premium, and they exhibit different liquidity characteristics and fluctuations in supply demand well compared to the risk-free rates. The two key differences between Sonia and LIBOR are as follows. Firstly, LIBOR is, as mentioned, forward-looking. It is agreed at the start of an interest period and for a defined tenor, so for example, one month going forward, while Sonia is backward-looking. So it cannot be determined until the end of an agreed interest period. And of course, Sonia is an interest, is a risk-free rate it doesn't incorporate any element of liquidity risk. And we are going to discuss the implications of this second difference a little bit later. So given those two differences, the solution that has been developed by market participants to mitigate the effects of this key difference between Sony and LIBOR is as follows. You aggregate the Sony rates on a compounded basis over an interest period to produce a term interest rate. What does that mean in practice? Well, that means that the interest rate on a Sonia loan will essentially be reset on a daily basis. So a three-month interest period would be made up of three months' worth of daily rates. And then you use 
a so-called lag period and observation shift. And I'll explain what those are. So what those are, are then you take a period over which the daily sonia rate is compounded, which lags the interest period by, say, five working days before the start and the end of the interest period. And then your observation shift results in the interest being calculated from the start of that inverted commas lag period to the end of the lag period. So that will allow you the compounded rate and the related interest payment to be known, in my example, five, five days before the interest payment date. So this five-day period will provide borrowers in a loan situation with a working week to move funds if needed, for example, in order to meet the interest payments. Thanks, thanks, Asif. So I guess the point to bring out of this five-day lag in particular is if you look at how LIBOR works now, particularly in loan agreements, there is more or less certainty at the beginning of the time you set your interest rate as to what the eventual rate is going to be, because as Asya mentioned, you have the tenor of three months, one month, whatever, as a look forward. So it is essential where you have a daily overnight rate, as Asya said, to find a way of not getting right to the end of the interest period and having to try and assess interest on that day, which would be an outcome neither good for borrowers nor for lenders. Um, but perhaps I could move on to uh, Asya or Michael. The obvious solution to this, if there was a solution, and if we were trying to keep this very similar to the way LIBOR works, would be to have a forward-looking Sonia rate, which was equivalent to LIBOR, and it asked, you know, or allowed for three months or one month or other look-forward rates. Is that something that is in prospect at all and or recommended by the regulatory bodies or indeed the industry? I'll take that, Jeremy. Thank you. Um, so, yes, it's, it's fair to say that in the loan market, participants probably would prefer a forward-looking Sonia term rate because it provides, for example, borrowers with visibility and financial certainty on the interest payments. But such a forward working rate is work in progress for several reasons. Now, the working group at the Bank of England that I mentioned have been steering the market to compounding in arrears on daily rates and not term rates. Um, because they view term rates as more likely to be used by entities such as retail, smaller corporates, private wealth type customers, and not sophisticated market participants. And also, the other reason has been that term forward rates might reintroduce some of the risks that are currently inherent in the LIBOR system. Daily rates, kind of from industry point of view, are more likely to conform to the risk-free approaches in other currencies. So that will be important for multi-currency loans, which are a standard feature in mid-market loans. So that's the first part of my answer is here's where the, the, the Bank of England is steering the market. However, of course, there is work that is being done. So kind of as a second Part of my answer, I should mention that Recinitiv, which used to be Thomson Reuters, have just launched the prototype term Sonia reference rate. So, of course, they have experience in administering benchmarks. 
So they're creating a British pound sterling forward-looking term risk rate that is published daily prior to noon, and that will be available on one, three, and six-month tenants. But in conclusion, I'll say that Refinitiv expects to launch a regulated version of the rate towards the end of this year. So that's quite an ambitious project that um, is, is still work in progress, but seems to be on track to, to be available by the end of the year. I guess, Jeremy and Asia, from, from a regulatory point of view, you know, there, there's a key conduct risk here, which is explaining, first of all, you know, will rates, uh, will loans based on Sonia or or possibly if, if, if we can get one in place, a Sonia term rate, how will the economics be different, first of all? And from a regulatory conduct point of view, the key point is explaining to a bank's customers what those economic differences are where they're changing the rate from sterling LIBOR, for example. And that's a key challenge given we're still looking at what might be the appropriate rate to use in each circumstance or, or which variation of uh, a Sonia plus a credit spread, what that might mean for the bank customers. And there's a, a critical piece of work going on within banks to decide how they explain all of this to loan counterparties. So, so I guess the question that for different reasons will be on everybody's lips or at the top of everybody's mind will will be when we when and if we convert to Sonia let's assume for this purpose that it's on a uh, the daily rate the overnight rate that we were discussing earlier will those loans be cheaper than LIBOR or will they be equivalent to LIBOR or even more expensive than LIBOR um, and I don't ask you to predict the future entirely, but just as a, in general as to what you can see looking forward. Um, maybe, Asya, you could help us out with that. That's a very important question. I'm sure the forefront of every borrower is uh, uh, thinking. Um, Sonia is lower than LIBOR because it doesn't include the liquidity risk premium that we previously noted. So in the, as a result of that, lenders are actually likely to increase the margin or add a credit adjustment spread to cover the difference. So the answer is no, that lending won't become cheaper because of the transition. Another difference is that, more indirect, but Sony is an overnight rate. And at the moment, loan agreements contain break costs that are currently charged when the borrower breaks an interest period. So in theory, those should no longer be required because loans are no longer priced against the forward-looking term interest rate benchmark. But again, a note of caution, in place of break costs, it may well, the industry may, the market may well develop such that lenders would require some prepayment fees to compensate them for the early repayment. So I, without holding a crystal ball, I don't foresee a Sonia-based loans get being cheaper than LIBOR-based loans. Thanks, Asya. That, that's that's very very helpful, and I'm sure people will be either reassured or less reassured. I don't know to to hear that. So, uh, I guess the next issue that that I wanted to touch on, and, and I'm is is how this in practice is going to impact loan documents, which are obviously either in place right now or which people are in the course of negotiating. So. 
and I may just t take this a bit forward myself and then ask Michael um, to, to comment a bit. We, we currently have, obviously, a loan market in which most loans, certainly that are governed by English law um, or based on LMA, are LIBOR-based loans. And there will need to be fairly fundamental changes to the terms of those loans if we are, if and when we shift to, say, a Sonia overnight rate for the reasons that we've already discussed, including the fact that it's an overnight rate, not a look-forward rate, um, the shift and the periods we have to use for interests, et cetera, et cetera. So the question is, what is happening right now to this? Because as you may already have picked up from the conversation, there is still some uncertainty and still quite a lot being thought about and developed in terms of actually getting to a point at which the uh, the final Sonia rate or whatever it will be will actually be fully drafted and fully in documentation. Um, it's worth mentioning, by the way, that there have been some deals done um, with, with a Sonia replacement for LIBOR already, but they are still, it's still a fairly nascent part of the market. So the the way that this has been dealt with so far has been at least done for the LMA to produce recommended clauses which provide a, mecha a mechanism by which people can negotiate a transfer from LIBOR to SONIA and hopefully in a reasonable and timely manner so that the transition can be negotiated preferably well before the end of 2021 when LIBOR is currently scheduled to cease effectively being available. So at the moment, the LMA has produced recommendations and LMA wording, which actually sets out the amendment process. And it has also produced what it's called exposure drafts, which are drafts of the sort of drafting you would want to have in place, taking account of many of the issues that Asya and Michael had explained, to allow a full conversion to a Sonia rate. So those are still exposure drafts only because there is so much to be done in terms of finalising and tying down exactly how Sonia will work, as, as we've been explaining throughout here. So that is where the LMA is right now. It is a fairly rapidly changing picture, and um, there may well be updates uh, from time to time and perhaps in the quite near future. Michael, I just wondered if you wanted to add anything to that. Thanks, Jeremy. I guess the related point is that uh, earlier in the year, the Bank of England uh, working group on sterling rates um, did publish a roadmap setting out milestones and deadlines for transition, um, including an, an aim that funders stop writing LIBOR-linked notes by the end of the third quarter of 2020. I think because, oh, well, definitely because of COVID-19 and the difficulty in finalizing um, the variations on Sonia that need to be put in place, that date has been pushed back to the end of the first quarter of 2021. But I, I think it's a key point to note that this is a, a process that can be done now in terms of lenders are already stopping offering LIBOR-based loans. 
lenders are developing Sonia-based loan templates uh, that can be used and, and also beginning to look at the LMA language that, that we've just discussed. Maybe Asta wants to say a little bit more about the the proposed LMA uh, replacement of screen rate clause, uh, which has also just been updated in the past few days. Sure, thank you, Michael. Um, so picking up where Jeremy left, LMA has uh, done significant amount of work in that respect. That clause, the revised replacement of screen rate clause, was first published as a standalone document in May 2018, and then it was subsequently incorporated in, into the LMA recommended forms of facility agreement. And now in August, the LMA published a supplement to that clause. So I'll very briefly describe how the supplement can be used depending on or, or how it cannot be used depending on the compliance preference of the particular entity. So at the one end of the spectrum, i.e. if one desires the greatest certainty for borrowers and lenders, market participants would prefer to include free agreed conversion terms in their facility documents. So such terms, uh, and I'll mention where, where we are with, with their drafting, such terms really involve a switch mechanism, which provides for the benchmark rate to be automatically converted to an alternative rate on pre-agreed terms set out in the documents on the earlier of an agreed date or the occurrence of a specified trigger event. This supplement that I mentioned has just been published actually doesn't constitute such pre-agreed conversion terms. But the LMA at the moment is about to produce a form of facility agreement that incorporates a switch mechanism. So that's the most conservative approach. In the middle of the spectrum, some market participants may have been able to agree an outline of some of the terms that may apply to benchmark conversions, and they may wish to then include an agreed process for negotiation in their facility documents, perhaps set out in a term sheet or similar. So the supplement includes a placeholder, allowing it to be used in conjunction with that approach. And then the third alternative, the other end of the spectrum, i.e. where market participants haven't been able to agree terms that will apply to a benchmark rate conversion, they would wish to consider the inclusion of just an agreed process for negotiation in their facility documents. So the supplement that's just been published in August is designed to provide an option for such an agreed process for negotiation because it provides for the parties to set a date sufficiently ahead of the end of 2021 to agree in good faith the use of a replacement benchmark. Thank you, Asia. That's there are there are obviously several approaches. I, I guess the next question is what happens if you uh, borrowers and lenders get to the end of the deadline period, so they get to the end of December 2021, and they have not been able to renegotiate the facility terms so that Sonia or some other rate has been effectively agreed and tied down. Um, and in this context, Michael, I wondered if you could have 
ago at explaining the way in which the regulators and others are looking at this, and in particular what they have described, I believe, as tough legacy contracts, maybe also just mentioning whether the concept of tough legacy is likely to apply to a LMA loan agreement. Sure, Jeremy. So as, as the um, process for the cessation of LIBOR and, and the plan for LIBOR transition came into focus over the last couple of years, a number of market participants identified that there would be a number of types of contract referencing LIBOR where it would not be possible to convert to a non-LIBOR alternative rate or amend that contract to add fallbacks um, to cater for a situation where the LIBOR rate is no longer published. And those type of contracts are referred to generally now in the market and, and by regulators as, quote, tough legacy contracts. I think the market feels that legacy loans, uh, both syndicated and bilateral, can be amongst the toughest category of contracts to transition away from LIBOR, given that there's often requirements for uh, majority lender consent in some circumstances and borrower consent. We don't have a final decision yet from the UK regulator whether that would mean that uh, syndicated loans of that nature, for example, would automatically fall within the tough legacy category. The Sterling working group that we've been talking about has done some work on uh, tough legacy issues and identified a relatively wide range of tough legacy contracts. However, when the UK government came out with some legislative plans to deal with the issue, they implied a much narrower range of contracts as being tough legacy. And I guess that's a good, a good link to just briefly describe what the two proposals are at UK and EU level are for dealing with the tough legacy issue where you've got contracts that are still referencing LIBOR after 2021. But maybe before I go on to that, maybe Asia or Jeremy, you want to just talk about whether the market feels that a large proportion of legacy loans are going to fall in that tough legacy category. From my perspective, I have some doubt as to whether LMA contracts in themselves will be tough legacy, not because there are not difficulties in renegotiating them, because I think, as you said, Michael, the fact that you will have to get majority lender plus borrower consent to those amendments and agreement is not going to be easy, particularly given the volume of loans in the market, but because those contracts generally do have a fallback rate. So Part of the intention, as I understand it, of tough legacy legislation or regulation was to try and deal with contracts or situations in which doing anything other than LIBOR is effectively impossible and therefore there is some sort of requirement that you need to continue with it or continue with a synthetic version of it. So, so I think there will be a bit more debate about whether these type of loans are impossible or fall into tough legacy or whether they are just difficult but don't because they have fallback rates. And Asya, we'd be very interested to hear your view on that. Yeah, sure. So there is a view out there that as between derivative bonds and loans, loans, a significant percentage of the existing loans might be viewed as tough legacy. 
So they are considered the toughest category of contracts to transition away from LIBOR because not only because of the requirements for sometimes borrower consent or consent of all lenders, uh, but um, also because um, some of the existing fallbacks are not really workable. So not not the screen rate, which in itself is problematic, but there are there are loans, significant amount of loans out there, we understand, that contain a fallback to ind the individual lender's cost of funds, which is quite problematic as it is quite difficult to calculate and to know what is the relevant cost of a lender of a particular loan. So compared to other instruments, there may be a sizable bucket of legacy loans that are tough to negotiate and transition. Thanks, Asia. So, So in effect, even though there is a fallback rate, which you could use, the, the likelihood is that that will be undesirable, to say the least. And that is why these loan, these type of loans may well become tough legacy loans if people are not able to negotiate the alternative in. So, so I, th I think we've covered a lot of ground in this discussion. I think one final point that I wanted to wrap up on um, was... Uh, something mentioned by Asia, which was hedging, um, because a lot of LMA loans are hedged and hedges run alongside the loans. So I just wondered, Michael, if you could perhaps very briefly comment on the issues that you might have if you are trying to transition LIBOR loans into Sonia, and what issues you might have if you are trying to do that alongside swap arrangements where which are hedged effectively and, and what sort of issues might arise because you're trying to do both at the same time? Well, I guess the, the key issue is, is where you change the benchmark in the main loan agreement, you could end up with a mismatch in payments where there's a change to the benchmark rate in the related um, ISDA derivative document as well. Um, so that that is a a key difficulty in the process that that um, market participants are facing. Yes, I agree that if changes are required in the loan, they have to be. You know, one has to be thoughtful and consider how the hedging product would also change as part of the LIBOR transition. And uh, I know we're running out of time, but to even make a stronger example here. What if in our hypothetical loan, you have LIBOR transitioning to Sonia, uh, but actually your interest rate, your hedge provider is a European regulated institution. And what if you are stuck with tough legacy type of contract? It, um, and this is quite a large topic, but something to um, I'll ask um, Michael to highlight that. The um, approach to um, the, uh, of the FCA and the European Commission to what should happen is different. So there may be many levels of mismatch in, in that situation. That's right, Asia. There's another area where you could end up with a mismatch in that we were talking about tough legacy before, 
and, and I'll be very brief on this because they're, they're quite complex proposals, but the UK and the EU have taken divergent approaches in how to deal with tough legacy contracts that we talked about. So the UK approach is simply to provide for a synthetic version of the LIBOR rate that will continue to be published after the end of December 2021, um, but will only be able to be used by market participants in relation to a very narrow set of tough legacy contracts with that category of tough legacy to be um, defined in the legislation later this year and in FCA guidance. The EU approach, on the other hand, is similar to an approach that's been proposed in New York uh, in, a, in a legislative change, which is to have any reference to a LIBOR rate um, in a contract be changed by operation of law to a different rate. Uh, and the European Commission has indicated it expects to be the appropriate alternative reference rates, and it will consult on what the appropriate change change rate should be. But you can see, as Asya said, that that could result in different economic results when you're using, for example, the, the synthetic LIBOR rate compared with the rate that's been changed automatically by operation of law under the EU proposal. Uh, both of these are legislative proposals that are going to be finalized over the coming six months, and I expect market participants will want to keep a close eye um, to check whether there is a possibility of divergence between the EU, the US, and the UK, um, or whether they manage to settle on appropriate standards and reference rates for each of the LIBOR currencies that, that will be replaced. Yeah, there there is clearly quite a lot of uncertainty there and, and stuff, uh, material to be worked through. We, we need to wrap up, and, and I think we've managed to get through this whole discussion without mentioning COVID more than once, and we haven't mentioned Brexit at all, uh, but now I have. So since I've mentioned it, and, and absolutely as, as the final question, what, what do you think the impact will be of Brexit, as far as you can say, on what we have discussed? In some ways, rather limited in terms of immediate effect. Once the transition period under Brexit finishes, LIBOR will become what's called a third country benchmark under the benchmarks regulation, the regulatory architecture for, for benchmarks, meaning um, that it's a non-EU benchmark administrator producing it. Um, however, there are transitional provisions in the BMR that mean that a third country benchmark can continue to be used by EU supervised entities until the end of 2021. So it kind of you know, adds to the, 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 the importance of that December 21 date in the future. I think you know, there's a possibility that Brexit makes it more difficult to facilitate the necessary cooperation between the EU and the UK on dealing with the cessation of, of LIBOR. Um, but clearly, there is a need for that cooperation, and and you would hope that it would continue, notwithstanding whether or not we receive um, equivalence uh, treatment, for example, in relation to financial services uh, legislation. So thank you, Michael and Asia, very much. Um, and thank you all for 
tuning into this week's episode. If you have any questions about anything we have discussed, then please do feel free to reach out, Michael, Asia, or myself, with any questions or, or concerns that, that you may have, and we'd be delighted to, to speak to you. The material and information contained in the podcast is for general informational purposes only. Any use of the audio within this podcast without the express consent of Cadwallader is prohibited. Quotes from this podcast may not be used without the express permission of the speaker.